0: Welcome on in, ladies and gentlemen. Bienvenidos, señoras y señores. This is NAI Made, the stories of small college baseball and the lives it's changed. I'm your host, as always, Robbie Gutierrez of the NAI Ball podcast, of NAI Made, of NAI Ball. I am thrilled to be here with you once again and to share another story with you today. Today's story is, well, the Jake McKinley story. Chances are, if you follow NAI Ball, you've heard him on the podcast. If you followed our work at ABCA, you've seen him on live video. He was a main stage speaker at the ABCA conference in Dallas. I'm really proud to call him a friend of mine. He's somebody that really does some great things in baseball and has made it up the ranks. Today, what we'll learn is his journey. He didn't just become the Milwaukee Brewers minor league pitching coordinator by chance. There was a lot that went into that. There's a lot that goes into his entire journey. And he's a guy that really, by the time we finished talking, made me open my eyes and realize I'm not alone in my trials and tribulations and what I went through and As a young coach, and how many days I thought, why am I here? Why am I doing this? What is going on? Why do I continue to put myself through these 60 hour work weeks for no money? And really, it's a challenge. And you constantly have to have either a coach or somebody remind you it's all going to be worth it in the end. And in my case, it was. And in his case, it was. But you're going to hear about a guy that was a lot like myself and it's incredible to learn that and you don't find that out until you have these deep conversations with these people but he had a lot of success in high school and gets to college and has a 10-15 ERA in his first year who steps on campus and is like oh man, I'm in some trouble here things aren't going to come as easy Jake and I are going to talk about some of the struggles it takes At one point, he lives in his office. He moves from one side of the country to the other. I mean, just the sheer struggle that it was as a young coach for him until the place that he got. And the crazy thing is, is we all go through it. And a lot of times as a young coach, you're thinking, why? Because I've thought it myself, why? Why? And so I'm excited to share his story with you. And I think especially if you're a young coach in baseball at the NAI level or at any level, this is going to be great for you. Because a lot of hard work and determination went into this and there's a reason why Jake wins everywhere he goes. So without further ado, here's our interview with Milwaukee Brewers minor league pitching coordinator and skill acquisition coordinator, Jake McKinley. Joining me now on NAI Made, the stories of small college baseball and the lives it's changed, in NAI Ball podcast production is, well, a guest that we've had on multiple times now. We've had him on video, we've had him on audio on the NAI Ball podcast. Joining me for the third time ever, Mr. Jake McKinley. He is the Milwaukee Brewers Minor League Pitching Coordinator and Skill Acquisition Coordinator. Jake Man, what's going on? How are you doing today?
1: What's up, Robbie? Thanks so much for having me on the call today. It's, it's good to be here.
0: Man, I'm excited to get into this with you because I was one, I was already excited when we had talked about getting you on the show and being able to tell your story. And then earlier this week you sent me your timeline and I just started to get really, really pumped by reading some of the things we're gonna go over uh really I don't I don't think a lot of people know some of the things about you that, that we're gonna talk about and there's there's definitely some stuff out there uh that'll that'll open some people's eyes to what it takes and, and the life that you have to live if you want to be successful uh in this game sometimes, especially coming from the small college background.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm excited to get into it uh and and get raw and, and uncensored.
0: We're going to get after it, but first I got to tell you about something that one of your former players said, something that uh, really struck me. So what I did is I asked two guys that know you pretty well to go ahead and and give me some words about you. And the first one we're going to go over, we'll get into the second one a little down the road, but the great Ashkahn Kualua, somebody I absolutely love. I, I love Ash. I love talking to Ash. Um, I asked him to give me some words about you. And this is what he said. It's tough to put into words what Jake has meant to me and my family. As a coach, there's none better. As a role model, he has it all. And as a friend, I couldn't ask for a better one. To say that Jake came into my life when I needed him most would be an understatement. He took a gamble on this punchy kid from Kauai based off the recommendation of one of his players and my life has changed ever since. He taught me so much more than just baseball. Skip made me realize that being a good person in life would correlate to becoming a good teammate and an even better baseball player. Jake provided me with tools and opportunities to become a better man, and in turn has made me a better ball player. He proved to me that you can build a better team by building better men, because better men make better teammates, and better teammates make a better team. He turned practice from I have to go into I get to go, and that into I want to go to practice. He allowed us to compete at the highest level and wasn't afraid to challenge us both on and off the field. I could talk for hours about his ability to create and sustain a culture of learning and competition. At the end of the day, I can't tell you enough about how much I look up to Jake. He's one of my biggest role models, and I'm absolutely blessed to call him a friend. I couldn't thank him enough for everything he's done for me. I'll skip I said what's up if you get the chance mahalo always Ashkon Kualua what does that guy mean to you he's somebody that I love to talk to he's he's really an incredible dude but for you as somebody who coached him what what does he mean to you
1: man and you know just so it's hearing all that stuff is those are the, the paychecks I think you get as a coach um knowing that you know, you, you've you been on someone's journey or a part of somebody's journey in a helpful way. Uh, but I think it's two-way street. Um, you know, Ash said that he learned a lot from me. I learned a lot from him. And it, it was it was fascinating to see his progression, both as a person and as a player. Um, there was never a shortage of ability with him. I mean, just incredibly talented. And he's one of those guys that's just like, he's like the best at everything. He's the best video game player. He's the best golfer, the best volleyball player, best baseball player. Um, But to see his progression from, you know, the first day I coached him to the last day I coached him, uh, that was incredible. And I think one of the biggest things that happened in his life is, is he had a son, a son uh, legend and legend would be uh, at a lot of our games at William Jessup. And, uh, and I just felt that as he became a dad, I think a lot of his, Paternal instincts uh, trickled onto the field, um, and he was almost like you know he was the elder statesman of the group. Obviously, he was one of the older guys, but he also, uh, you know, he had like a parental like leadership, very protective of his teammates and his coaches, uh, but very very open to uh, to teaching and, and helping wherever he could. Never above any task. Um, just just a great servant leader. Uh, so, like Ash said, I, I learned a ton from him, um, and it's truly an honor to call him a friend. And you know, I, I would say he's a friend for life. Obviously, I love to go golfing with him. He's the best golfer that I know. <laughs> and so, anytime I'm in a scramble, I gotta, I gotta rally him up to give ourselves a chance to win. Um, But just, just an incredible dude. And uh, he was so good about helping me and, and my coaching staff get connected with players in Hawaii too. I think our team at William Jessup we, we have like 10 or 11 Hawaii boys and, and Ash was a big part of that. So, um, you know, hearing those words is emotional and, uh, and he means just as much, uh, to me as he stated in that, in that piece of literature.
0: Yeah, he's, he's really an incredible guy. And, and, you know, we said that at some point we're just going to get together and go sit down somewhere and, and talk about baseball and all the stories we've had. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really incredible because I realize that not everybody had the same coaching experience I did. Not everybody had the same, you know, college experience that I did to the point to where they have that relationship with a coach that is fantastic and is not just a relationship. It builds into a friendship after. And, and that's something I can say about both of my coaches in college, uh, both Jeremy Kennedy and Robert Garza, that, I've developed in after college was that, that friendship and uh, I love both of them. And I could just absolutely feel that from reading what Ash put. And so I I was just absolutely stopped in my tracks by it to see that, Hey, you know, this guy feels a, a lot of the same about how I feel about my coaches in college. And, and so it's really incredible. I'm really excited to tell your story here. Um, you know, from high school to William Jessup to Menlo to, you know, everything, everything that's the stuff that people don't know about, the stuff that people do know about. So let's, let's get rolling with it here. So you graduate high school, two sport athlete at Union Mine High School, you're a football player and a baseball player, but you gravitate towards baseball because of your ability level. But here's the thing that jumped off the page to me. You're the student body president. Tell me a little bit more about your high school experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, high school was was just awesome. I think another thing that's kind of interesting about my high school experience is I, I had perfect attendance in high school, too. I didn't miss a day. Um, I missed I missed a half of the day my sophomore year, so they missed the second half of the day to go to a funeral, and the school wouldn't honor that as perfect attendance, which that's still like a family crisis to this day. Um but i i loved high school and one of the unique things was so i started i started high school at a school called ponderosa high school uh which is in the greater sacramento area of california and um it was a big school and then they opened a, a new high school in between my freshman and sophomore year so the new high school is where i ended up going and they only took freshmen and sophomores and so they built it with just those two classes um so when i went to the new school i was basically like you get that feeling like you're already a senior, you know, so I had almost like three senior years, if you will. There was no class above me. Um, and I think that was unique because I got to experience pretty impactful leadership opportunities at a really young age. I, I started my my um, sophomore year when I was 14 years old, I graduated when I was 17. So um, even from the time I was a sophomore to when I was a senior, had impactful leadership opportunities and then, you know, evolved into being a student body president, which was a, which was a great experience. And because of the newness of the school and I, I guess the modern thinking approach of the school, uh, you know, I really felt like I was able to make uh, a lasting impact there. So it's a really, really special opportunity. And I, man, I, I loved high school.
0: So you have this awesome, really high school experience. You were successful. I mean, student body president, popular, I'm, I'm assuming uh, you go to college. You're a freshman in college, and you're cut by American River College. It does not start the way that you imagined it. You go to NAI Bethany University, which we have something in common. There is is we don't have a university anymore that our our piece of paper, uh, degree no longer exists. Yeah, but you have a really rough freshman year. You go one in seven with a ten fifteen ERA and you're a two-way player, and you hit 206 that year just had to be absolutely taxing for you, both physically and mentally. Tell me more about it.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, you know, and being from a smaller town, uh, I did have a good amount of success in high school, so as I entered junior college, I felt that I was going to be able to make an impact and play right away, transfer to a Division One school, play professionally, uh, and, and within You know, a couple days of junior college practice, I was humbled pretty quickly because I was far from the best player on the field. Um, I want to say we had about 100 100 players try out uh, for the fall. And I did make the fall team, uh, but about three to four days into the fall, just the physical conditioning was at a ridiculous rate. And we ran so much. um, And our practices typically were five to six hours. Practice limitations were far different back then. So it got to the point where i was not really enjoying baseball because i was i was going to the field every day and getting my butt kicked um both on the field and off the field um i was i was commuting from home about 45 minutes and we we had 6am weight so you know being up at 4:30 in the morning it just uh it was becoming not very fun for me um, but I actually, I felt like I held my own in the fall to a degree, but ended up just not making the team, which just wasn't quite good enough to make that spring roster. Um, so Bethany University and NAIA school in the Santa Cruz area had offered me uh a scholarship out of high school. And uh, so I, I circled back with them and ended up taking that offer, went there, um, and just it just didn't get any better. Uh, like you said, I I got my butt kicked on the mound like every time I pitched. Um, It was just I would get blasted and then, you know, from a hitting standpoint, just really had no chance. Um, But it was a good crossroad for me because I think at the end of the year, I had realized how much um, my peers had caught up to me and and how insignificant I really was in the game as a player. So I was either going to have to, you know, just be a student and take more of a traditional approach to college and getting a career or I was going to have to get a lot better. And I was fortunate that I got to go home that summer. I played for a local American Legion team and uh, really, really got after it in the weight room. Um, so during that summer, I would say I grew into my body a little bit. I got a little bit more coordinated. And when I went back to my sophomore year in college, I, I really had kind of transformed myself physically, which I think led to mental transformation as well. And, and that's when my career started to take a turn. But boy, yeah, you're, you're right. There was a time there where I was like, I, I don't know if I'm know if i'm good enough to uh to play college baseball
0: well you know you know you go out in your sophomore year here cabrillo college junior college is so you transfer second school or third school technically yep things get a little more ironed out for you eight and six sub three era you're the pitcher of the year for the school what was that like to get your really your mental state back on track
1: it was good, you know, and and they actually took the bat out of my hands there, which it was like insulting <laughs> at the time, <laughs> but I think it was good for me because I got to really focus on, on one thing. But I'll tell you what, you know, we, our pitching coach there, and, and unfortunately he's passed away since then, but a guy named Brian Sennett, um, he, he had pitched, I want to say he pitched for Fresno State like back in the 50s, so he's an older guy and uh and he said something like really impactful to me that stuck he he just said like whenever he saw me throw the ball like in in pfps or team defense he thought i kind of threw more from a sidearm slot um and i'm tall you know i'm six foot four and so i'd always been coached to like throw over the top and he's like you ever just tried to like pitch with that lower arm slot and it it was like an immediate aha light bulb moment so i started throwing more from like a low three-quarter slot and that's really what help my career take off but what it took was an old school coach essentially to say like you got to be yourself and you got to embrace who you are and stop trying to fight you know how your body moves basically um so that's when things really did start to get ironed out it was actually a-, a slight mechanical change um and then yeah you're you're right that, that year at cabrillo was was great there were still some challenges uh we had a tough year i think we finished in fifth place but uh but for me personally, it was it was really impactful.
0: So now you're a junior in college. You transfer back to Bethany University. You're the team MVP now. So a total change from the first year they saw you two years ago as a freshman. Team MVP, five and eight with a two five two ERA. You hit fourth in the lineup every single day, just about. Hit two ninety one on that team. What was that like for you to really, I mean, now you've basically just been such a huge turnaround in college from what you thought it was going to be to what you become.
1: Yeah, it, it was, it was a crazy year to be honest, because, uh, you know, one thing that when at least my teammates and I, whenever we were so really close to this day and when we talk about that year, it's interesting. We started 0 and 18 that year. Um, and a lot of our losses, they were like two to one, three to two games. Um, and we ended up finishing that year um, 16 and 26. So had a really strong finish. But for me personally, it was, I guess I was a, in a sense kind of like our Ashcon Kuhalua, where I would pitch just constantly. Like if I was pitching, it was just kind of like, yeah, we need you to go like eight or nine innings today. And then like, come out of the pen tomorrow so that's why i guess when i had ash you know ash would do these like crazy things on the mound where he would like go cg and he'd want to close the next day or like start back-to-back days and i was a little more sensitive to it because it was like i get it i've been there uh but just an amazing year um you know my teammates from that group remain very close friends today um and you know the physical turnaround was obviously was obviously very cool for me, but uh, it was more so the relationships that I think have had a, a more of a lasting impact on me.
0: So now you become a senior. You go seven and seven with the three two five. You hit in the middle of the lineup. You're the team captain. But not only that, you get your degree in communications. So you do graduate. You sign a pro ball contract. You go undrafted. You're a right-handed pitcher here with the Chico Outlaws of the Golden Baseball League. Broke a league record in your rookie season for K per nine. But you also started your coaching career that year. All of a sudden now you're an assistant baseball coach for your alma mater. $3,000 a year at Bethany University. Pitching coach, outfield coach. And you lived on the floor of your head coach's living room in a house that had really some big-time drainage problems, some mold issues but the team goes 31 and 20 it's the best season in school history what was that entire year like because that just sounds like just so many things going on there
1: (laughs) it was man it it was nuts like i'll be honest when i when i got into coaching it it wasn't like you you hear people talk about why they got into coaching and there's really like awesome reasons like i can't i can't claim that like I, i didn't get into coaching to you know make an impact like you hear all the time I got into coaching because like I needed something to do for the off season. I needed a place to train. So I was like, if I can be around this team, I'll get to like still practice and make a few bucks. Um, so I'm not like proud to admit that, but that is the truth. So I got into, got into coaching there at Bethany and I'll be honest, like that first fall, I probably messed up more players than I helped. Um, very much over coached people. And then, Uh, you know, we were fortunate. We had, we had a good team. Our our head coach, a guy named Chris Lewis, just did a super job recruiting some guys late and uh, we were able to win a lot of games, but I fell in love with coaching probably towards the end of that fall semester. Um, a lot of hours in the office. And then, yeah, you know, I, I, I had a, I had a mattress. It was a twin mattress that I think we, we hijacked from the dorms. Um, and we just put it on his living room floor, and it was an on-campus house, I would guess maybe 300 square feet, huge mold problems, and when I talk about drainage problems, I mean like legendary stuff. One time, for example, I was taking a shower, and we had had spaghetti for dinner, and uh, the spaghetti noodles, they started coming up through the drain while I was showering, so you know, like you're already in this weird situation and you're showering and there's like legitimate spaghetti coming up into your shower. It's like a scary movie. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but I guess just like roughing it like that for that year uh, and connecting with the guys, just like a lot of long road trips and vans practicing in a, in a small gym. Cause we didn't have a field. It, it was so impactful because a, you're in this confined space where you develop good relationships with people, but B, it was so good for me as a coach because we didn't have much, you know? So you had to get really creative with how you use your space and how you use your time. Um, and, and our head coach was, he was, man, he, today he remains like probably my biggest mentor, but he was, he was tough on me uh, in terms of challenging me to find ways to make it work. Like we could sit there and complain about, not having a fielder where you can do something about it um and and i think that that just really really inspired me uh moving forward as a coach so that that first year at bethany it's crazy i I didn't get into it for the right reasons but i think i had the right intentions by the end of the year and i knew by the end of the year like i was going to go back to play my second year with chico but i knew i was going to be a coach uh, by the end of that first year
0: so you do end up going back to play with Chico. You break into the starting rotation, 3-3 three and three with a 6-5 ERA. You retire at the end of the year and just decide, I want to be a coach. Was that kind of the decision that was made there?
1: Yeah, yeah. They actually said they were willing to bring me back. Um, but I think every every person in their life has to come to some point where you're like, you're just being realistic with yourself. I was right-handed. I was – uh, a mid to upper 80s guy like could touch 90 but i was an underwhelming right-handed pitcher playing independent ball and i was 22 years old so it was like you can you can continue to like try to live this dream out or you can try to go get a career and i think getting a career in in coaching is risky um and and i don't shy away from that statement for guys that are getting into it and it's risky because you don't make any money. Like, I didn't get a full-time paycheck to be a coach until I was 29 years old. So I basically volunteered for eight years uh, before I started getting paid. Um, but I did feel like as a 22-year-old with one year under my belt, I, I was at a little bit of a head start, had a little bit of an advantage. And I was like, if I go all in on this coaching thing, this is kind of the time of my life where I don't have to worry quite as much about, like, money or family and I was single at the time so I just kind of went for it which ended up leading me to a job at Campbellsville
0: yeah so let's go into that job at Campbellsville you basically move on a whim to Kentucky from California and all of a sudden you're in charge of recruiting pitchers outfielders y'all finish 28 and 20 you qualify for an opening round tournament Uh, the recruiting efforts really they they comprised of players from the West, you, you recruited what you knew best.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was, it was a whim. Like I had never been further East than Utah when I took that job and and I actually got the job in the middle of the year. So it was December head coach there, Buford Sanders, who who's still there. And is an absolute legend. Um, he, he called me and I, and I didn't know how much I was in the mix, but he called me, um, it was like December 15th, right around there, right before Christmas. And and I pulled over and I talked to him in the parking lot of the gas station. And he was just like, you, know, do you want do you want the job? I said, yeah. I didn't have any other options at the time. And he said, okay, what's your shoe size? Um, so I told him my shoe size. And I was like, okay, if this dude's going to buy me shoes, like, I got it. I got to do it. I got to get out there. So, yeah, man, it was like two weeks later, my dad and I packed my, my Honda Accord to the brim and just drove to Kentucky. Um, and I'll tell you, my first year was challenging, man. Like I heard a lot about Southern hospitality and I didn't feel it my first year just cause uh, new guy from California. And I think people were like thinking that I was like from the beach or I knew movie stars. I was like, no, no, no. I'm from a small mountain town in California. But, uh, uh, it was really cool though. Cause Buford, despite his expertise and despite how successful he had been, he just kind of gave me the keys to the car with recruiting and uh and was super hands-off which which influences me a lot you know as i became a head coach like he was just like brought you here for a reason go do your job um and and as you said yeah i knew the west coast best so that second year at campbellsville i want to say of our 24 playoff roster members i want to say 17 or 18 were from oregon california or arizona so Amazing experience. That second year, I really did feel the Southern hospitality, um, and felt like I was a part of something much bigger than myself. And and that continued to confirm my belief that you know I, I was going to be a coach for for a career.
0: Right. So that that second year is where you really start to. It's basically your third season in coaching, but it's the second major year with success. Y'all go thirty nine and twelve. You do have eighteen of twenty four players from the West Coast. NAI World Series birth you get your masters in social science and you authored the first ever thesis in the program what was that that whole year like because now you're several years out of college and and everything's just kind of been been crazy and uh you've found a lot of success at Campbellsville
1: Yeah so I mean much like the first year just it, it was a whirlwind because I was also simultaneously doing my masters degree there a lot of late nights, man. Um, I would go into the into the baseball office and I would work on the thesis, you know, into the wee hours of the night. Also I was trying to secure a recruiting class for that year. But uh, you know, the one thing that gets overshadowed about that year uh, is how we qualified for the um the NAI World Series it was the first year that the opening round existed, like that format that we have today. And uh we were the one seed in a, in Lindenwood, Missouri. You know, so we went, we won the first game, um, and then we lost the second game to Kansas Wesleyan. So we were going to have to win three games in a row to advance. So we beat Lindenwood on kind of a crazy comeback, um, and we brought a kid in named Brian Fuller. Uh, so Brian closes that game three innings scoreless, right? So does a great job, but then we've got to play Kansas Wesleyan in the championship right after so we roll him back out there. We're like, can you go? We're, we're getting thin on pitching. He says, sure. Roll him back out there. And he goes complete game shutout. Okay, So he's thrown 12 consecutive innings and he and has not allowed a run, forces the championship game the next day. So we got a text from him the next morning. He's like, hey, I want you to know like, I, I can pitch today. And our number one guy was available. Um, and so it was like a first, like, absolutely not. But we get to the field, he talks Coach Sanders into it, and we start him. He throws a complete game shutout, and uh, he does it in, like, 76 pitches. So it was on baseball tonight. Uh, the Jeremy Schapp came to campus, did a whole story about it. But this kid pitched 21 innings in 24 hours, had zero three-ball counts, and it was I want to say it was his second start of his career, and he was a senior. He was a life, lifelong believer. So amazing story of how we got there. Um, we were getting ripped by certain news publications for letting a kid do that. I think he threw 244 pitches in those 21 innings. So pretty amazing story of how we made it that year.
0: That is absolutely crazy. I, I did not know, uh, any of that right there. That is, that's wild. I mean, there, there's no, it other that. that's, that's absolutely wild. But, uh, one of the things you said kind of, you know, made me realize, um, uh, Again, where we've had the same experiences—the long nights in the baseball office doing like homework and and yeah. working on a th- on a thesis—and you know, when I was coaching for Jeremy Kennedy, I was trying to finish my degree, and that was the whole one of the whole reasons I moved out to Florida uh, to Kaiser University with him. And you know, I'll never forget those long nights switching over laundry and sitting in the baseball office till nine, ten o'clock, trying to finish my homework because I didn't have a laptop or you know, I had things to do before I could go to the library and the library wouldn't be open longer than I needed it.
1: Yep. Yep. It's God. Those are, those are those moments in life. And I always tell young coaches, like, you're probably not going to enjoy it in the moment, but you will look back on it and cherish it and say like, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, and that's how I feel about it today. Like I look back on those, those late nights in the baseball office and smile about it. It It was super cool.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I have to agree with that also because I did not enjoy any of that, and, and there were a lot of days where I thought, "What the heck am I doing here? Beating myself up over this stuff? Getting paid literally nothing?" One of the things uh, that I've never really shared is I did not have a, a scholarship that year. We had to pay. I had to pay for school that year, and I was coaching. Man. you know, yeah. <laughs> but I, I did it for the good of the team. You know, and it was yep. either we can get this dude or I can go to school for free. And I'm like, we're going to get this dude. We're going to get this dude and we're going to do something special. And we did. We won a conference title and it was the first school, uh, first conference championship in in school history. But I paid for school that year. And yep. I would, you know, there were so many days where I thought, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, why, why, why? And now I look back at it and I think, I'd do it all again. I wouldn't change a dang thing.
1: Amen. Amen to that.
0: So now 2009, 2010, you're the volunteer assistant coach, pitching coach at West Valley College. You lead California in shutouts. You go 24 and 14. So you're starting to find more success in college. That summer, though, you go all the way to Australia and you run the winter program for the for the Perth heat in the Australian baseball league, what was that like?
1: Uh, Australia was, was, I would just describe it as interesting, man. Uh, it was, it was cool. It was cool to like live in another country and experience another culture. Um, but I'm telling you, it was nuts. The first day I was there, I got a speeding ticket. Um, (laughs) So like right out of the chute, like you're driving on the wrong side of the car, the wrong side of the road, you're already rattled and then everything is in kilometers and they're like, if you break the speed limit just by a tick, you're going to get, you're going to get flagged where use here, usually like a little bit of grace. So get a speeding ticket. And uh, so that sucks. And then I want to say it was like two or three days later, I was driving a big old van parallel parking it in downtown Gold Coast, which is a super busy city. And as I'm backing up, I, I hit a car, um, a nice car. So I like bust its headlight. And then the owner of the car, he, he comes up to me, sees it happen, shirt off, ready to fight. And I'm like, dude, we're, we're not going to fight. Like I'll pay, I will pay for this, but I, I'm not going to fight you. <laughs> you know, so it's just like that experience. Experience in Australia was crazy at first. Um, but eventually uh, when I got over to Perth and, and I was really, really involved in the program and running the program, uh, again, just started to come into my own there. Um, that was probably my first case of being a head coach. Um, I, I did coach in the Mink League between my first and second year at Campbellsville and co managed the team. But like this was kind of my first experience of being like the guy in charge, writing practice plans, et cetera, and doing so in a different culture where where baseball is not the primary sport. Uh, Again, like it just challenged me to make sure that the practice environment was fun, um, but it was also conducive to players developing and getting better. So great experience. I think I was there for about four months. Um, There were times there because, again, like not a lot of money. So there were times there where you – you having those experiences, like, what the heck am I doing with my life? Um, But again, I I would do it all over again. No questions asked.
0: You come back from Perth in that season at West Valley, and now all of a sudden you move up to the Division I rank, Sacramento State University. You're the Director of Baseball Operations in 2010-2011, volunteer position, brand-new coaching staff. Y'all basically inherited one of the worst teams in the country you go 18 and 36 finish in last place but in 2011 2012 they give you a little promotion you're now the volunteer assistant more hands on with outfielders and pitchers and you have a lot more success that season what was that 2011 2012 season at Sacramento State like for you
1: It was awesome man it was awesome like that first year as the ops guy uh, obviously we we just weren't very good um there were some good pieces in place we had some good young players but we took our lumps, um, and it was just kind of like routine on the weekend. Just You just get your butt kicked. But the second year, yeah, like some of those freshmen became sophomores. Um, our head coach, a guy named Reggie Christensen, he's still there. He's uh, he's done a super job turning that program around. But, you know, we brought in some freshmen. We played some freshmen every day. Reese Hoskins, the Phillies' first baseman, being one of them. Uh, and as a freshman, Reese hit. Uh, he had close to 400 with 10 home runs. Um so we had some awesome pieces in place and like we won that conference late Uh we were kind of a middle of the pack team all year like we'd go a game over 500 and then we'd drop a game below 500 but we went on a little run late ended up winning the conference the last weekend of the season and you know shoot we were we were six outs away from winning the WAC championship Um just came up a little short there in the end unfortunately but amazing experience and much like the story of, of my whole career, um, although we were D1, we, we lacked resources. Uh, we weren't as equipped as some of our, our, our peers like Fresno State or, or Nevada or Hawaii. Um, so we just had to be really, really creative with how we were recruiting, um, how we were using our time, how we were using our resources and space. Um, and, and fortunately, you know, we landed some good local talent And, uh, we just kind of committed to playing them when they were freshmen and, and we reap the benefits.
0: So the next very next season, 2012, you're the recruiting coordinator. Now you go 34 and 25, you continue to work with the pitchers and the outfielders, but now you have your hands on in, in recruiting. And really, did you find some success in that at, at pretty much what has been the highest level you've recruited so far?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um. I got a good taste of what the lifestyle was like too. Uh, You know, I would go in, I would go to campus in the mornings. We would practice. We usually practice around one o'clock. And then when we would finish, it was just kind of like, all right, where am I going? You know, like go to a high school game or I'd go to a junior college game or a junior college practice. But it was like every single day you're going somewhere. Um, So I think you, you naturally evolve and, and you look for ways to continue to grow. So it was a lot of like, uh, books on tape <laughs> in my car. Um, and then, you know, during all my trips, and then when I would go watch players, just, you know, learning what, what we wanted, like what kind of guys would fit our program, both from an education and uh, from a baseball standpoint. And, uh, you know, once again, very, very fortunate that we landed some incredibly talented players that year, you know, one in particular that we had worked hard on kid named Alex Palsha, he's in the Mets organization, but and he was a guy that was, he was throwing 97 miles an hour before he left Sac State. And um, he was a guy that I want to say was 88 to 90 when we recruited him. So also having that ability to like see a guy and then project where he's going to be down the road. That was a very valuable skill. I think I learned uh, working at Sac State uh, with those recruiting opportunities, but also with some really good coaches alongside me.
0: So 2013, it finally happens. You finally get that head coaching job you've been looking for. Menlo College, you're named the head coach on September 14th. You finish the year 29 and 28. You qualify for the opening round. You lose 13 of 14 early in the year. You make $30,000 in, And again, I feel this, in one of the most affluent zip codes in the nation. But what really stands out to me there is you lived in your office. Yes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I did live in my office. And,
0: and that's not it, metaphorically. It's laughable.
1: Yes. No, I, I really did. I uh, The office, it was a square room, and I had a sectional couch kind of shaped like an L. <laughs> and then there were a couple desks in there. So I would take the couch cushions off at night, and I would lay them on the floor. So I'd sleep on the couch cushions on the floor. And the cleaning lady, she usually would come into the office at 6 a.m. So, I'd have to like be up, but also working by then because, like, I didn't want to get caught because I found out pretty quick into this, like, it's a fire code violation. <laughs> so, uh, it's funny now, but at the time you're just like, oh shoot, like, I don't have enough money to rent something here. Um, my salary is 30 grand and it's in Atherton. So, like, the only way I could make it work, yeah, was to just like just sleep in the office and just kind of blend in. Um, they're on campus, and everybody's like, "God, Jake, Jake's here so early every day." Uh, well, you know, Jake never left. So uh, it was a man. It was a wild first couple of years. Um, fortunately, the situation improved there, but uh, holy smokes! And then you know, in the midst of that, you come back to that thing we we've, we've talked about as a recurring theme: is that that moment where you're like, "What am I doing with my life?" Um, and you know, that year we started seven and zero, and so you know, you're feeling good about yourself, and we lost. 13 out of 14, and I'm telling you, it was a beatdown, probably 13 of those of those losses. I mean, we weren't even close. Um, so you go from, like, kind of the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, um, and that was super powerful for me as a coach because I had – as a coach, I'd experienced a lot more winning than losing, and to just go out there and just predictably get beat down every weekend, it, it was wearing on me, it was wearing on my staff, it was wearing on our players. Um, And that was a powerful moment for me as a leader because I had to be able to take this group and um, try to educate them on, on the bigger picture and what we were going to have to do to get back on track. So um, look back, I would do it again. I would live in the office again, no questions asked, but boy, there were some, there were some tough times and there was a lot of uh, growing pains in that first year.
0: You know, you, you said the reoccurring theme of what am I doing? Why am I here? And if I could tell you, How many times that I, you know, I thought that when I worked in baseball, how many times I thought that what in the world am I doing here? Why am I doing this? What am I, what is going on with me? Why do I put myself through this? And just the way that it changes your life and evolves you. And if you just keep pushing through it. And I think that's the hard thing as a young coach is finding ways to push through it. Basically what I told you you know, before we started recording, when you asked me, what am I doing nowadays? It's, I just took my passion for baseball and numbers. And all I did was transfer that into television. And that's what I do is I look at data for TV and, and, you know, it's, it's finding that medium to, to do that and be able to keep yourself happy because baseball makes you happy. But at the same time, you're literally the resources aren't there in division one. There's no third paid assistant. There's nothing, right. you know, and, and it just, as it goes further down the line, it just becomes less and less and less and less. And it's hard to, to stay positive and it's hard to keep going. And it's hard to evolve yourself into the person you want to be because it's such a beat down and it's such a grind, but, but you still find ways. And that's what really has astounded me about you is that you still found all of that way to do this. and, I never had to live in my office but there were so many days where I thought especially my first year in Florida where I thought where am I going to live next because my roommate is moving out moving back to Texas I can't afford the apartment on my own the apartment complex you know is going to make us redo everything if I bring somebody else in there and luckily somebody took me in and I was able to live in a spare room and in a you know sneaking in and out of a high rise condo in West Palm beach, Florida for a year and a half, you know, um, and, and while it was the most luxurious place I've ever lived in my life to have to sneak around security and move in and move out in secret or else I would have had to pay so much money. I couldn't even tell you, uh, was, was really hard. And to park on the street every night and, and pray that, I didn't park in a towway zone or my car's not going to get broken into or security's not going to stop me as I'm trying to enter the side entrance of this building uh was that's that's tough and so to live in your office man I mean that's that's really rough and and to be up before the cleaning lady got there and and you do it again in 2014 you do it again you're the head coach again there at Menlo you go 33-20 and 20 postseason qualifier. You have your first draft pick in Daniel Comstock in 18th rounder for the D-backs. Start to show signs of a program turnaround. You were still secretly living in the office. But this time, you've got a roommate in Jason Ochart. And really quickly, here's what Jason said about you when I asked him to give, give me some words about you. Jason Ochart said, Jake is a world-class leader and coach. He's a natural motivator and teacher, and it's not a coincidence that he wins everywhere he goes. He's a winner, and it's contagious. Personally, he's a mentor to me and an amazing friend. He took a chance on me as a first-time coach at an NAI with no experience. He showed me the ropes. His coaching tree is large and powerful because of his ability to develop people. Any success I have, I owe to him. That's Phillies minor league hitting coordinator Jason Ochart. He's also the director of hitting at Driveline Baseball. What is what does Jason's word mean to you there?
1: Yeah, it, it means the world um, because you know, like you said, we we shared we shared an office. Like you said, I had a roommate, so now the couch cushions. He would sleep on one side. I'd sleep on the other side of the office, just both of us on the floor, both of us having to be up early before the cleaning lady gets there. And I just think when you're, when you're in such a confined space, um, with another person that you work with, and, and I want to say his salary at Menlo that year was four grand. Um, you just get to know somebody and you really, really respect what they're trying to do to make it work. Um, and, and to go with that, like, he and I were coaching youth travel ball that year. You know what I mean? So at the time I was I was 29, 30 years old and coaching youth travel ball on the weekends with this dude and he's living in the office and it was just all day, every day. Uh, and so we became just extremely close friends. Um, but obviously to hear him say that, it, it means a lot to me. Um, and, and, and I knew pretty quick after he was on our staff, I knew pretty quick like this guy was gonna be Uh, a big deal. One thing I always shared with him that I heard from Augie Garrido. Augie Garrido spoke at our our banquet when I was at Sac State my first year. And uh, something he said that always stuck with me was, if you're the best at what you do, somebody is going to pay you a a significant amount of money to do it. So just like, just stay the course and don't let the money be your motivator. Like if you're the best yo yoer in the world, somebody's gonna pay you a lot of money to yo yo. So I'd always tell him that, like, hey, your skill set is elite, it's world class. I know it's hard, you know, given our situation, like you're living in the office, your car never starts, <laughs> like going through that sucks, but you're gonna you're gonna do big things. So like just stay the course, you know what I mean? And I'd almost hear myself say that like I was talking to myself too, just just stay the course. Um, it, it was just a, it was a powerful friendship, powerful relationship. And obviously he, uh, you know, he made a huge impact on our program and, and honestly, you know, he's a big reason why Menlo baseball got on the map. He became kind of famous on Twitter.
0: Yeah. You know, I actually, I followed him, uh, way before all the driveline stuff and and all that. So, you know, I knew who he was on, on Twitter and, uh, at that time, I was, you know, starting to get into coaching and, and all of that at at Kaiser, and um, uh, that's that's the crazy part that you say is is stay the course. And how many times I've heard that from Jeremy Kennedy over the years, and just I know you're driving yourself insane. Just stay the course, keep with it, keep with it, keep with it, and uh, definitely a rewarding experience. So I can understand, you know, and and both of you guys have have gone on to go do such amazing things from NAI baseball into working into the big leagues and working with big league eventual big leaguers. But your third year, you go 35 and 21 at Menlo. You have two top 10 round picks in Lucas, uh Ersig, who's a second round pick by Milwaukee, and then uh Massimo Dutto, who's a ninth round pick by the Chicago White Sox and you had arguably the best offense in the NAI that year.
1: Yeah, it was uh, – good Lord, what a, what a fun team. You know, I, I, I talked to a lot of guys from that team that year, and it was just pretty remarkable how, how much ability that team had. Um, again, like a learning moment, a humbling moment for me as a coach because when I look back on that team, You know, two of our three starting pitchers were uh, low to mid-90s arms. Um, Our closer was Urseg, the second rounder, who, you know, flirted with 100 miles an hour out of the bullpen. We had two top 10 rounders on the infield. Um, We, I think we led the country in offense. Like, all these amazing things in place, and you hear the record, like 35 and 21, kind of underwhelming. And here's the funny thing about that team we played Westmont college the last game of the season and we had to win that game to make the conference tournament. So for me as a coach, like that was really, really enlightening because it was like, what is actually wrong here? You know, because there's so many amazing things in place and we we squeaked into the conference tournament. But to what Ash said earlier, that's when I really had the, look myself in the mirror and say like what's the common denominator you know it's me um i if there's any problems here it starts with me as the head coach as the leader um and that's when i really started to make a lot more investment into people uh into into team culture um and not worry so much about the results i i I guess i gravitated more towards if, if you have the right pieces in place if you have the right coaches on your staff if you have Uh, People that are kind of all pulling in the same direction, you're pretty limitless. But I was limiting our team that year because I was putting a lot of pressure on them to win. Um, And honestly, putting a lot of pressure on our staff with things, quite honestly, that just weren't in our control. So on paper, I think that team gets glorified a lot. But what a lot of people don't realize is, I mean, we were literally one loss away from not even competing in the conference tournament with two top 10 rounders. And I think we had four or five guys that were low to mid 90s on our staff. It was honestly, uh, it was an underachievement given the talent level, which was my fault.
0: Well, the next season you come out, you have a little bit more success. You go 34 and 20. You're ranked as high as number six in the nation despite the recruiting challenges of 60K per year, very little scholarship money, most expensive place to live in the USA. I mean, and that's kind of the story. a lot of schools but they don't have that place of come and live in one of the most affluent communities in the country and so you just keep building on recruiting challenges there and all of a sudden you put you're able to put together this incredible team you have the nation's leader in home runs in Jordan Getzelman who has 26 and then three NAI All-Americans in uh, Gerard Alexander and Getzelman what was that season like for you because, I mean, there's so many problems there recruiting-wise, whether it be cost of school, the fact that you have almost no scholarship money, and then on top of that is you're living in a place that's on the other side of the bay that's just absolutely incredibly expensive.
1: You know what? That team right there uh, was a turning point for me as a coach, and and one thing that I, I failed to mention earlier is we didn't have a field that year at Menlo. Uh, our field was under construction. So we played every game at uh or on the road, every single game on the road. Uh so fifty-four road games. Um and we seldom had a place to practice. So we had to kind of like at Bethany, we would get these lights. We practiced on our tennis courts, we practice on our, our soccer field, uh, but it was a very confined space. I had a brand new coaching staff that year because O-Chart went to driveline. Our other assistant from the year before, David Tufo, had gone to Portland. Um, the University of Portland, James Threw had gone to Concordia University. So I had a brand new coaching staff. And the talent that we had on that team was far less than the, than the prior year that I had just described. So here's what I learned, though, is when you spend – that much time on a bus with with the same group of guys, uh, like I'm talking, we would go to San Diego from Menlo, which is about a nine-hour drive to play home games. Um, <laughs> like we'd go play a, a, a team down there. Like San, We went to San Diego Christian, for example. We drove down to San Diego Christian. We were the home team on the scoreboard. It was technically our home game, but we're 10 hours from home. When you spend that much time on the bus with a group of people, they're just, there's a closeness that gets created that I just, I can't put into words. Um, and then there's a lot of shared adversity. That team that year, like it was probably the sickest team I'd ever had. Like it was just constant. Like the whole team would was, was, would be sick. Um, and we just, we weren't that good, but we had some pieces in place that could help us win games. But like a lot of the heroes of that team were the ones that, you know, aren't glorified like the Getzelmans, the Gerards, the Alexanders, and those guys were amazing. Um, but some of the heroes were the guys like a guy named Andrew Cox who had to catch every day and he had like no catching experience and, and he hit, I, he probably hit under 200 that year, but like he had some big hits when we needed him. So it was just a really good example of a team that had a tremendous amount of adversity, um, lacking in a lot of areas, but just found ways to win. So that 34 and 20 was something that I was like really proud of. And as a coach, it was like, okay, if we could have that type of culture with that type of talent or uh, that type of culture with the type of talent we had in 16, um, you know, we could have a pretty unstoppable team. So uh, again, just like I said earlier, when you, when you're without resources and you're without space, you can kind of just sit there and complain about it, or you can, you can make it work with what you had. And that team did a remarkable job of it.
0: So on June 1st, you're named the head baseball coach at William Jessup University. Really quickly, before we get into your time at, at William Jessup, how hard was it for you to go from Menlo to William Jessup where it's a school at Menlo where you've built all of this success and you're going to a school at William Jessup that really had never won more than 10 games. What was that decision like? How hard was it on you?
1: It was really tough um, from a standpoint of, of removing myself from the, I guess, the lives of the players at Menlo. Like, I, it wasn't a hard decision in terms of like leaving the college um, itself, but very tough to leave the players. Um just because, like, I'm William Jessup's 40 minutes from my hometown, so I could get closer to my family. Very close to my family, very close to my parents. Um, so it put me closer to home. Um, their William Jessup's facilities were really good, so I felt like we had a little bit uh, more from a recruiting perspective. It was a cheaper school, it was a cheaper place to live. So I actually felt like it was a better job in a lot of respects. But boy, it was it was really rough to make that phone call to all those players uh at Memo. very tough.
0: If you go to William Jessup, you go 41 and 17 in your first season, already set a record for wins at the program. Gsac regular season and tourney champs. You had your first ever draft pick. You were one win away you know from going to the NAI World Series. The prior team had won 10 games literally. Your G-SAC coach of the year, Austin Swift is the G-SAC player of the year. What was that entire season like for you? Oh
1: man, it was it was so awesome. It was awesome. I mean uh, I think a lot of the cool part was in the fall just inheriting the the previous team. Um, when I got to Menlo, so rewinding a little bit, when I got to Menlo my first year, I think I had the wrong mindset where it was like, I got to get my own players in here. We got to like change culture. And I did a poor job of just identifying like what was already right about the place. Um, And I think I lost some relationships as a result. And I lost some good players as a result. So when I got to Jeff, I really, really wanted to invest in, in what we had um, and make it work with what we already had there. And there were some good pieces in place. I think we brought, 10 or 11 guys in that summer, but it was a lot of the returners. Um, So that was cool. Like it was cool to take, you know, some new guys, blend them with some returning guys, bring them all together and say like, you know, we have a common goal here. Uh, We're going to get this thing on track. We're going to do it together. And uh, man, it was, it was just awesome. We had a great fall uh, rolled into the season and we started one and three. That's kind of the funny thing about that year. Um, We, we didn't have a great start. And uh, uh, fortunately, the team just really, really started to pick it up. Uh, we split the next weekend, um, so it was a little bit better. And then as we entered conference play, we, we kind of got on a roll. And, um, but sort of like the Memo team in, in 2017, like we, we had some talent, don't get me wrong. But uh, a lot of like unsung heroes. Our fourth outfielder is a kid named Alex Novakiewicz. I think that Alex started maybe five games all year. He didn't get a lot of playing time, but he appeared in every game of the year because two of our outfielders were also relief pitchers. So he'd always have to go in and play the outfield. And the amount of, like, big hits he had, he had a game-saving diving catch in the GSAC championship game where it was like that was a, a powerful message for the team because, you know, I would say our MVP was actually him because here's a guy that, like, he never starts. He knows he's not going to start. But he keeps himself ready because he knows he can impact his team. And he impacted us like every game, it seemed. Um, so it was just a really dynamic group. But our talent very much existed um off the field. It existed with the culture. Um, I mean, you know, we were fortunate to be in the position we were. And, gosh, we got really close. We just came up a little short in the end. But just uh, that's probably uh, it's, it's up there with my favorite teams I've ever been a part of as a player or a coach. It's just an incredible group of people. Um, and, and it was fun to kind of reignite some excitement in that, in that area because it's kind of where I was from. So the community got behind us and our administration got behind us. It was, a, it was a, it was an awesome experience.
0: Can you tell me about that series with, uh, Antelope Valley and how tough it was to be one win away from the world series? And, and, uh, I've been in that situation to where we were at Auburn Montgomery and, all we had to do was win one game and, and we get back there. And it, it's just heartbreaking to lose it. But for for yourself as a head coach in your first season at William Jessup against a, a very good Antelope Valley team that did some good things at the NAI World Series, what what did that whole battle, you know, in that opening round tournament, what was that like for you? What do you remember from it?
1: Very emotionally draining and exciting. So one thing, you know, you look at the box score, you see the final box score, it is what it is. But one of the craziest things about that championship game was we were down 11 to 3 in that game. Um, and then we, you know, we were scratching, clawing, making it closer, making it closer, but it all of a sudden it goes from a complete blowout to like, Hey, we're kind of in this thing. We were the, uh, we were the visitors and in the top of the eighth, we were down 11 to 15. We loaded the bases, and I I pinch hit a kid named Connor Braun. Um, So Connor Braun pinch hits, gets to an 0-2 count, and they hang a breaking ball and hits a grand slam to tie the game. So you have this emotional low where you're down 11 to 3, and you're getting blown out. All of a sudden, you hit a two-out grand slam to tie the game in the eighth. And obviously, our dugout's going bananas when this happens. And at that point I was like, There is no way like internally, there is no way we're losing this game. You know, and and credit to Antelope Valley and their coaching staff because they were able to recover from that and they, they held us after that and they scraped a run across in the bottom of the ninth to walk off on us. But <clears throat> you know, that was one of the things that I'd shared with the group after the game is like I know you're hurting, um, and I know that this really sucks to be on the wrong end of this game, but like you guys were as, as low as you could get and, and to do what you did together to come back and tie that game. Here's what I can say. Like if you live your lives with that type of tenacity and if you approach your work with that type of tenacity and will to never give up, you're never going to go wrong. Like life will be good to you. So it hurts, but man, I, I was just so proud of our group for not giving up because I think when you're down 11 to three in that environment on your home field, in front of your home fans, like, boy, what a time to cash it in. And they didn't. Um, and there was like a very common belief on the team that we were going to come back. And I, man, I think it was like the sixth or the seventh thing we when we were down by that much. So, um, I don't know. I mean, after the game, I was emotional. A lot of people were in tears just because they, they loved each other and the season was over. Uh, but at the same time, I was just, I was so proud of, uh, that team because they they never gave up um, no matter what happened. And that's, that's a very rare trait.
0: 2018, 19, you come back for your second season. Uh, A big happening is you're named to the ABCA main stage clinician. And we'll get into that in, in just a moment, but all of a sudden you're named the pitching coordinator, minor league pitching coordinator for the Milwaukee Brewers. How did that happen? Tell me about it. And, and really how much of a shock was that to you? Because I'll tell you, I, would, I had just gotten out of a movie and I had silenced my phone and, and turned on Do Not Disturb. And all of a sudden I look up, you know, as soon as it ends and I've got like nine direct messages and 12 texts. And Cody's called me about six times. And all of a sudden the next thing we know is, is you're working for the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, what was that like for you?
1: Oh, God, it's surreal. Um, you know, the fall was really interesting, uh, at William Jessup because, like I said, I, I felt like we had a team. I was like, this, this could be a national championship team if we stay healthy. Um, and at the same time, I was spending a lot of time prepping for the ABCA, uh, convention. My, my assistant guy Nick Quejado, and I would go to a coffee shop every day after practice and we work on my PowerPoint and my presentation. So I was really entrenched in that and had no aspirations to leave William Jessup. I, I just felt that I would would be there and try to crush crush that year. But yeah, I got a, I got a missed call from uh, a Milwaukee number, which I sent to voicemail because I just assumed it was a telemarketer. And fortunately, our farm director, a guy named Tom Flanagan, uh, sent me a text and just asked me to, to call him back. So it was a Thursday. I'm on an airplane that Sunday uh, to Milwaukee. Interviewed that Monday, and I think I took the job that Wednesday. So it was like a one-week process for a complete life change. Um, and when I flew out to Milwaukee, I, I wasn't in the mindset like, "Hey, I'm taking this no matter what if I get it." But as I met the people with the Brewers in the front office, especially, um, it was it was pretty overwhelming, just like how good of people uh were were inside the organization. So one of the first conversations I had was with our big league pitching coach, uh Chris Hook, you know, and he and he sent me a text and he was just like, hey, I'd like to chat with you. Like, oh my God, you know, I'm about to talk to a major league pitching coach. Um but like, you know, five minutes into the conversation, I was just like, man, this is a normal dude. This is a good dude. He had college coaching experience too. Um talked to our GM, our farm director, and just like everybody was they were good people. And and I think you can always kind of determine, like, if something is authentic or if it's fake. And I, I just felt like authentically, the Brewers are are good seeds, and um, this would be a great opportunity. So I ended up taking the position, and uh, it's been it's been an amazing experience working for the Brewers.
0: Well, well, you know, before we get into some of what you did in in spring training and and things like that, ABCA comes around. You're on the main stage and, you know, you, me, Cody, we have, we, you know, we've had you on the show. Uh, we've talked to each other before on the phone. We've, we've texted, but that was the first time I got to meet you in person. And just me personally, it meant a lot to me that you were on the main stage and weeks earlier, we had set this thing with you about what time you were going to come and interview. We interviewed 50 plus programs at ABCA convention in Dallas. And even though you were technically no longer with William Jessup University, you still came to your allotted time uh, that, that you, were, you were supposed to interview. And that was, meant a lot to me because it was really great to get you out there and, and have you talk about what's up next and, and talk about William Jessup baseball And so, uh, for myself personally to finally get to meet you in person, that was, that was absolutely outstanding. And then you, you absolutely crushed it on the main stage. You were the NAI representative for that season. You did absolutely awesome. I mean, I I loved it.
1: Yeah. Thanks, man. And, and, and I think that's just so what your point is, like, it's why it's an honor to be on this call. Like you should never ever forget your roots. You know, I am an NAIA guy through and through. I played NAIA baseball. The vast majority of my coaching career uh was in the NAI. So I owe the NAI a great deal of gratitude. And so uh it was despite being uh an employee of the Milwaukee Brewers at that time, it was an honor uh myself just to meet you and and, and come on the on the live feed at that time. So uh but man, you know, at the same time just a huge honor to be on the main stage at the convention. Um, I've, I've been going to the convention for a number of years, and I'd always wondered what that might be like. And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, so the night before the uh, the the presentation on the main stage, um, I was a little concerned that, like, I was going to have a hard time sleeping just because of the anxiety of, of speaking in front of that many people. And, uh, and, and my talk was at, uh ten twenty and they said, you know, we need you there by nine. So doing the math in my head, I was like, I gotta wake up, I gotta do a rehearsal, gotta get breakfast and and get over there. So I was up by six. I set my alarm for six and as I expected, like just no chance of sleeping. Um so I remember it was four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I had not slept a, a wink. And uh so I get on my phone, I go to Google and I Google, can't sleep the night before a presentation. And so I'm, like, reading these articles, and I find this article, and it's basically like, you're not alone. This happens to a lot of presenters, and just know, like, when you get up there, your adrenaline will take over. Everything's going to be fine. so I was backstage before I presented, and, I man, I felt just so tired, you know, just so heavy and so tired, and I would crushed so much coffee. And uh, when I walked on stage and just kind of, like, looked out, and you can see humans as far as your eyes can see, I think that that article proved true. Like my adrenaline kicked in, and it was kind of an out of body experience. It felt like I was up there for 10 seconds, and then it was over. Um, but you know, that'll be forever one of my my life's just greatest privileges was was to present at that at that convention, just in the company of of so many great baseball people, so many of which are are so much better than me. So it was it was awesome, man.
0: And that's, that's absolutely an incredible experience and, and really pumped that you got to do that and, and experience that. And really for everything that you're doing in in the right direction, pretty much that, that you're going in right now, what was your first spring training like with the Milwaukee Brewers and, and kind of after that, take me a little bit about what your job is like on a day-to-day basis for you and, and who you're working with.
1: You know what? Um, so spring training, and even now, um, I've found it to be ironic because for my 13 years as a college coach, I said something to players all the time, and I would say to them, like, if you're uncomfortable, it's a good thing because it's it's where you can grow. So embrace it, like, and, and just know you're going to grow. You're going to get better from being uncomfortable. When I got to spring training and I saw the the level of coaches we had, when I saw the level of athletes we had, I immediately got uncomfortable. And it was almost like the universe was switching it back on me. Like, okay, dude, you've been saying this to people for 13 years. You're going to get a taste of your own medicine. And when you're around such like elite performers and elite coaches and elite front office people every day, There, there there's some uncomfortable moments there. Um, and so I will say this. I, I think what I've always said is true. Like you grow a ton when you're uncomfortable. But one thing I don't think I ever shed enough light on is that when you're uncomfortable, like, man, it sucks. It sucks. Um, it, it's hard to, to be in that constant state of like wondering, like, am I good enough? Um, is, is this going to work? Is this going to be respected? Um, But as you kind of like just power through those emotions and and those times and then, you know, some months go by and you look back and you're like, holy smokes, I've come a long way. That's what it's all about. So I'm so grateful to the Brewers, um, our players, our coaches, our staff members, because I've progressed as a person and as a coach so much in my time with this organization. And through the, through the ups and the downs, the one thing that I I think always stayed the same was what I touched on earlier, just the quality of human beings we have uh, in this organization. Um, Because one thing I've learned is baseball is baseball. Coaching is coaching. Whether you're at the highest level or the lowest level, players always want coaches that care about them as human beings. um, And coaches want to work alongside good people. Um, So, Coaching pitchers, setting up um, schedules with pitching coaches, working alongside of our other pitching coordinator, Mark Dewey. It's just been uh, it's been a really really cool experience, and I've grown a ton. And and even you know on the tough days, I look back at them now, and I'm like, yeah, I would do it all over again.
0: I think that's for me is is the biggest thing that's kind of opened my eyes in in this conversation we've had. Is there's so many Things that I, I thought were I'm alone on it and I thought I'm the only one going through this or I'm the only one having a hard time not making any money. But the the more I got into any ball, the more I saw, wow, it's everybody. And the more I talk with you, the more I'm like, there are people who who understand the struggle, who know what it's like, you know. And, and while I never had to live in the office, it's, it's not a good feeling just based on the person that I am to be sneaking in and out of someplace every day. You know, uh, it, it wasn't a good feeling to to do that, and it was hard. And, and all of these things that you've had to go through have been, have been tough, and I look at where it's gotten you and how it's all come, you know, and at least in my opinion, it's become worth it, you know, for you now with a big league organization and getting to coach in professional baseball. I mean, it's just absolutely outstanding and really not bad for a guy who is a, a student – body class president and and had a 10 era his freshman year of college
1: (laughs) yeah for sure and and you know what like when i was a young coach you know those first few years i'd go to the abca convention and i would solicit the advice of veteran coaches and the theme was always like the same like you're in the glory days man like you gotta really really love it and if I have one regret or like one thing I would share with young coaches in the NAI especially is like, don't forget to appreciate where you're at, you know, like, cause I would, I would go back to Campbell'sville and work those late nights in the office all over again. And I would live on that floor of that moldy house all over again. Um, sometimes like you just don't realize you're in the glory days until you're out of them. Right. Uh, so I think it's, so important to just have a great appreciation for where you're at. And um, I don't care if it's NAI, if it's Division One, if it's Crowball. Uh, you know, just the opportunity to, to be in baseball uh, is so cool. And that's something that the NAI, you know, provided for me. Um, and like I said earlier, like I'm eternally uh, indebted to, to the NAI.
0: Well, Jake, man, I wanted to thank you for taking some time out of your day and, and sharing your story with us and really opening my eyes to to a deeper look of who of who you are. And I think a lot of people who know who you are but don't know you personally are, are going to have a better understanding of that and really see that it doesn't matter where you come from, you can reach that that Pro Ball look. And I'm one hundred percent with you is is as, as much as I uh, complained and all that in, in my first couple of years working in baseball, I'd do it all over again without even thinking about it. If I could, if I could go back, I would. And so, you know, I just want to thank you for taking some time out of your day. I know it's your Sunday and, and really talking with us here and recording with us today.
1: Oh man, absolutely. It's a, it's an honor to be here. And uh, uh, you always have me. If you need me, I, like I said, I'm i I'm a lifelong uh, lover of the NAI, and uh, I'll say, I don't think anybody watches more NAI live stream than me. Probably you and Cody do actually, but <laughs> I watched a whole lot of William Jessup live stream this year. So you know, I, I, it's an honor to to be a representative of of your show and of the NAI.
0: We're going to go ahead and put you third. Uh, Cody first, me second, and then you. <laughs> uh, so, I'll take it. Hey, I mean, it's that's it's definitely big time to be up there. But again, thank you for taking some time out of your day. Again, Jake McKinley Joining us here on NAI Made, the stories of small college baseball and the lives it's changed. And if you couldn't tell by the end of this now, it has definitely changed his life. So Jake, thank you. And for those of you interested in episode three, we will have Seattle Mariners beat writer for the Seattle Times, Ryan Divish, who will talk to us about the reemergence of his baseball program at Dickinson State and what the NAI meant to him. Until next time, this has been another broadcast presentation of NAI made the stories of small college baseball and the lives it's changed in NAI Ball broadcast production. We hope you have a great day and an even better.